electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, and this is Squawk Pod. Today, inflation nation, but not for long, decrypting the big data release. For now, maybe the Fed can sort of take its foot off the gas. And on the other side of inflation, the giant reconciliation package that split the Senate might also split the House. We talked to one lawmaker who voted against it, Senator Tim Scott. The inflation part of the bill was caused by more spending, and now they're going to spend more. That's ridiculous. A $44,000 bonus? Cry me a river. Wall Street firms tightening their belts, the bonuses, and workers that won't make the cut. CNBC's Hugh Sun. They're going to have to come up with lists of people that they can do without. And the New York Post's Lydia Moynihan. The bonus this year, keeping your job. Those stories and so much more. A legal win for the PGA, Elon Musk, and talk about inflation. I think I've like paid a $30 for a salad once. It's Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by in three, two, one, kill three. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Andrew Ross Sorkin this morning. Joe and Becky are off today. Let's take a look at how we're setting up. First up on today's episode, price hikes are finally slowing down. Today we heard from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The Consumer Price Index, CPI, for July rose 8.5% year over year and was flat from the month prior. That is a lighter number than economists were expecting. The core CPI, which excludes volatile gas and food prices, increased just 5.9% from last year also lighter than economists were expecting. And all of this is really good news, especially for our wallets. It also means that the Federal Reserve, which is largely tasked with solving our inflation problems, could start slowing the pace of its monetary tightening. However, the Fed has said it's looking for a 2% core CPI number, and we're still well above that. Melissa Lee checked in with Jason Furman, who was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. The next Fed meeting is a while away at this point, right? I mean, it's the, the end of September. Really but for now, it looks like things are cooling. Maybe the Fed can sort of take its foot off the, the gas. So- yeah, look, this is a this is a much better report um, than I expected. Um, seeing a headline number of 0.0 um, is exciting. There's more reductions in gasoline that we're going to see when we eventually get the August CPI, too. I'm much more focused always on the core CPI, um, that coming in at 0.3. That's the lowest we've seen since September of last year. Some of those inertial components we were talking about, like owner's equivalent rent and rent, those may have been higher than expected, but they did tick down a tenth, both of them. I thought that was good news. And by the way, goods prices were still up. Those could easily be flat or start falling at some point, providing some additional relief. So I never try to take in too much from one month's data. For the last three months, the core CPI is still running at an annual rate of 6.8%. This could easily be like the false dawn that we saw in September 2021. Um, But for now, 
you know, I'll take it as a tick in the good direction. So is the worst behind us? Still to be seen, but at least our Jim Cramer, no relation, seems to think so. We obviously had peak inflation. We shall see in September whether this is enough for Fed Chair Jay Powell to hike rates by a smaller number than he'd originally planned. Let's talk corporate news because this is a biggie. This is our top corporate story of the morning. Elon Musk now officially selling $7.92 million Tesla shares worth almost $6.9 billion. Those sales taking place between last Friday and just yesterday. This according to a series of SEC filings published last night. Now, investors might remember earlier this year, Musk said he had, quote, no further Tesla sales planned. But Musk is, of course, locked in that legal battle with Twitter. And as he moves to terminate his deal to take the social media company private on Twitter last night, Musk responded to some Tesla fans who had asked if he was, is done selling shares in the EV maker. This is what he said. He said, quote, yes, in the hopefully unlikely event that Twitter forces this deal to close and some equity partners don't come through, it is important to avoid an emergency sale of Tesla stock. Now, Musk also said he would buy some of his Tesla shares back if he doesn't have to go through with the Twitter acquisition. Melissa, what do you think? First, he says he's not going to do it. Now he's being, frankly, I would argue prudent in that he clearly seems to be suggesting he may have to close this deal even if he doesn't want to. I, and even if he doesn't have all the financial backing. I think a lot has changed since the, the last tweet when he said that no further sales were planned. I mean, this legal battle over the court date set in October, that changes a whole lot of things for Elon Musk. The timing of it, Andrew, is really interesting and I think worth noting as well. This is after, you know, on the June lows, since the June lows till now, yep. Tesla shares are up about 35 percent or so. He sold before the CPI print. Remember, he said he had a super bad feeling about the economy. So the timing is yep. very interesting as well. Well, you know, it's interesting because he's also he said he's super he has a super bad feeling about the economy. But he's also said that he thinks inflation is coming down um, as he's talked about the commodity prices and input costs uh, related to Tesla's themselves. So I, I've, I'm never sure exactly where he stands in terms of where he thinks all of this is headed. But the other component to me that was so interesting about uh, this decision to sell those shares is it's also a recognition, I think, that just because some of the uh, financial backers uh, in the deal for Twitter with him, if they were to leave, that that unto itself, I think this is a recognition that that unto itself won't allow him to necessarily step back from the deal. Right, a recognition that he might be forced to actually go through with this acquisition. And I think for Twitter shareholders, that is certainly hopeful and heartening from their standpoint. Twitter shares, by the way, also a nice run since June lows, um, as we've seen with many, many of these tech stocks. But you know, in the, in the comment section on, on Twitter, when he said, yes, he would yeah. buy back shares, you have to wonder, you know, when Twitter shares take a dip, will Elon Musk be back in? And is that effectively a put in Twitter, in uh, Tesla shares, excuse me, in Tesla shares? And, uh, I don't know. That, for si- if, let's say he goes and buys another six billion dollars worth. Is that going to be the is that, is that going to hold it, hold things together if things go go farther down? Do you think it actually acts I as a point? I think it's a I think it could be a, a sign of confidence. You know, that no it, he still owns what 15 percent of the company. So for him to step in and buy even more. And what I couldn't tell is, is that I'll step in and buy more if, in fact, the Twitter deal doesn't go through and I have this cash lying around. Is that, that was open ended? I think saying? I think it was pretty right. open ended. So uh, okay. read, read what you what you will out of that. (laughs) We got to talk about this one, Melissa. I want to know what you think. 
because this is a big story in the world of sports, but really a big story, in the, I would argue, in the world of business. A judge denying a request from three professional golfers to play in a PGA Tour event this week after they chose to join the Saudi-backed Live Golf Circuit earlier this summer. Now, the golfers are among a larger group who sued the PGA Tour, alleging that the top U.S. golf league had violated antitrust laws by expelling them as punishment for joining the rival organization. What do you think of this? Well, the judge, the judge's ruling was made in part on the notion that the contract or the agreement um, yes. with the other circuit basically compensated them for what they were leaving behind on the PGA. And so it was fine to say that you are excluded from this tour. I, I can see the logic in that. I can see the logic. The other question, though, is do you think on a larger sort of antitrust basis that these these players are going to have a fighting chance, or do you think that ultimately what the judges said in this particular case is going to be the, the be the president? By the way, if this becomes the precedent, every other uh, commissioner of every other league can you know breathe a huge sigh of relief. Oh yeah, because this 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 is a major win for the PGA and frankly a major loss for Liv. I had not thought about it in, in that way. I think that's a really a really good point whether or not this is I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if this gets appealed or if this gets um, litigated oh, uh, this is at just another the beginning of a, yeah. a years long battle, I'm, sure. I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure let's bring you up to speed on some corporate news uh, shares of sweet green plunging this morning despite the fact that I like their salads the salad company's earnings topping estimates but revenue falling short company uh, cutting its full year outlook it also announced plans to lay off 5% of its workforce and downgrade its office space. Melissa. How much do you pay for a sweet green salad? Honest question. Too I've much. never been. But yeah. Too much. So if they Too, have price increases, can you imagine? 14, 14 bucks, 15 bucks. And then I sometimes. Think you're lowballing. I, and then I'll tell you what's worse. If you do it on Uber Eats or one of the uh, different platforms and have it delivered. You're paying even more. I don't even want to tell you. I think I've like paid a $30 for a salad once and it's. It, it upset me. It's my, you know, I'm a cheapskate. It's just, I can't do it. And you wonder why they are cutting their forecasts in an inflationary environment. <laughs> just saying. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the giant Inflation Reduction Act moves to the House after a tight vote in the Senate. Why some lawmakers are not on board with one who voted nay, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. We need a government that is responsive to the needs of the citizenry, not one that attacks the American people with more resources and regulatory burdens placed on small businesses. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, where we bring you the highlights of Squawk Box. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin with our next interview. Stand Andrew by in three, two, one. Cue Andrew. The House of Representatives expected to take up the Inflation Reduction Act later this week after uh, the vice president broke a 50-50 tie in the Senate. Our next guest voted no on the measure. He says it'll spend money we don't have on things Americans don't need. Joining us right now to talk about it, Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. His new book is out. It is called America, A Redemption Story. And Senator Scott, we want to thank you for joining us this morning. Um, Tell us your rationale for saying no to this bill. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Number one, a, a bill named the Inflation Reduction Act that does not reduce inflation, according to the CBO, according to Bernie Sanders, according to myself, uh, should all tell everyone that first, be very uh, curious about what's actually in the bill. Number two, I would say that when you're going to spend $80 billion of the money uh, raised for the IRS, which will make the IRS bigger than four major departments in the government, that's probably bad news for the average American. According to the Congressional Budget Office, 90% of the revenues generated by the IRS will come from people making under $200,000. The tax credits in the bill go to people making up to $300,000 plus. So people making under $200,000 will be paying for tax credits for people making over $300,000. That's the wrong direction for any piece of legislation. And you look at the actual tax increases. As a small business owner in, in the past life, so to speak, I can tell you that when your taxes go up, those are headwinds for wages increasing for your employees, as well as benefits getting better for those same employees. So this Senator, is bad news but, but, for our economy. But let's go through a couple of these things. And I think there's no question, I think on this program, on this network, I think we've all decided that that's, that the Inflation Reduction Act, the name uh, may, the proof will be in the pudding if the name turns out to be right. But, uh, but that there are numbers that, that put that in, into question. But I would ask, there are things in this bill that would help some of your constituents. Medicare recipients with prescription drug coverage uh, wouldn't have to pay about $2,000 annually for medications. That would, that would be deflationary and would be a help to your own constituents, no? Well, there's no doubt that when you cap expenses in some place, uh, that's a good thing for those who receive it. You're going to actually increase expenses somewhere else because the $100 billion that is, uh, it will cap out at is going to be paid for by a loss of research and development for our pharmaceutical companies, which means that you'll have to wait longer for new drugs to come to the market. But there's no doubt that for the person receiving the benefit, it's, it's good news. The question is, what's the price of that good news? And we don't have that discussion very often, and certainly we have not had that discussion so far. One of the things I write about in my book, A America Redemption Story, is the importance of understanding those living in poverty and what they face. When we have that conversation holistically, I think we're in better shape. When we just ask for something up front and not understand the long-term cost on the back end, sometimes we make bad decisions. That's one of the reasons why you hear so many alarm bells going off as it relates to the reconciliation package. Uh, Senator, I want to talk to you about the IRS because you raised it. And, and you've been someone who's talked a lot about the importance of law and order and, and enforcing law and order. And the reason I ask or, or I raise it in that context is uh, in the world of taxes in America, there has not been a lot of enforcement going on across the board. I mean, I think uh, no matter how you look at it empirically, the IRS has been gutted. The chances of getting audited today are very slim. And as a result, we have a lot of people clearly cheating the system who should be paying in. And so rather than actually raising taxes, we, I think, arguably should be finding a way to enforce it. Why are you against that? 
Andrew, I'm actually not against that, number one. Uh, I'll ask your viewers if they want the IRS coming, searching through their accounts for more information nobody about what they're doing. S May I Senator, finish my point? Thank you so much, that, Andrew. So let me finish my point, Andrew. Laws. I know that this is it? your show, but at the end of the day, I'm going to finish my point. My point is simply this, that in fact, if you want the IRS coming to focus on small business owners, according to the CBO, 90% of the revenue generated by the new IRS agents, 87,000 of them, will be focused on people making $200,000 or less. Let's not pretend that this is something that it's not. What President Biden and the Democrats said this bill would do is focus on millionaires and billionaires. That is patently false, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. It's one of the reasons why, as you read through my book, America Redemption Story, I talk about the necessity of fairness. This bill will be negatively received and negative impacts on the poorest Americans, middle-income Americans. The job creators in our country will see headwinds that they do not have today, and that's already in an economy with 9% inflation and only a 5% wage growth, which means that you have less money in your pocket because of the government. Look, I think we all want fairness. The question is if there's some people uh, that are that, that are cheating the system. How how would you otherwise enforce it? Is the issue the amount of money that's being given to the IRS? Would you get would you give the IRS any any new money? Actually, when we were in the majority, we did give the IRS more money without any question. So the question is not whether or not the IRS needs more money. The question is do they need six hundred percent more money? And the answer is no. Anyone who suggests that the IRS needs an eighty billion dollar increase to be able to do their jobs. They're just living in an alternate universe, and that's not something that the average person in our country believes to be the case. It's certainly not something that I would ever support. We need a government that is responsive to the needs of the citizenry, not one that attacks the American people with more resources and regulatory burdens placed on small businesses. It's one of the things that I find reprehensible about the current approach to finding the revenue generation necessary to pass, I guess, the climate part of their bill, because frankly, the inflation part of the bill was caused by more spending, and now they're going to spend more. That's ridiculous. Senator, as it relates to fairness, and it is a major point uh, in, in your book, um, how do you feel about carried interest? It was the one piece that was taken out at the last minute uh, with the support or, or at the behest, uh, perhaps, of Senator Cinema. Yeah, this is one thing that we have had multiple debates over. I'm not sure how the bill was written as it relates to the generation of the $14 billion through carry interest. I'd have to go back and read that part of the bill since it was taken out. I have no real understanding of what they were trying to accomplish other than eliminating the actual part of the bill uh, completely. I think that's what Cinema did. Uh, and then finally, let's let's talk about this book, uh, if, if we could. Um, what, what's the message that you're trying to uh, get the public to understand about the way you think about this country? Yeah, I think the truth of the matter is that America is the answer, not the problem. One of the things that happens so often in current society, Andrew, is that we tell one part of the ledger. Uh, if, if you're on the red side, you say this. If you're on the blue side, you say that. My, my approach to writing this bill, the, the book was to bring all of us together, realizing that there's been tremendous progress and there's still progress that needs to be made. 
Uh, I created Opportunity Zones because as a kid who grew up in something that was like an Opportunity Zone, I wanted more resources from the, from the private sector coming into my neighborhoods. I talk about the pain and the misery of lacking access to the American dream as a young kid and what that does to your soul. And so I try my very best to tell the story, my story and America's story, of how we have had pain and then opportunities. We had failure and then success. This is the greatest nation on earth, and it is our responsibility to make it even better. And I tell that story in my book, America, A Redemption Story. Senator, before you go, though, what do you say to all of the Americans who are watching us who say, you know what, I look at this country, and I'm not saying this is me, but I'm saying that they look at this country and they say that we are in trouble, uh, that they look at uh, where we're going relative to China, and they think that we're in trouble. They think about our democracy, and they think that, that that is under threat. They look at the gerrymandering that goes on in this country. They look at all of these issues, and they don't have the hope and optimism that you do. Why? And what do you tell them? Well, Andrew, I would tell the average person who feels hopeless, read my book, number one. And number two, I'll tell you why I think that's the case. One of the reasons why I'm optimistic is because growing up during the Carter years, I experienced really high inflation, 30% unemployment for African-American teenagers at that point in time. So I understand what that hopelessness feels like. I lived through it, and I want to show you a way out of it. Number two, I would tell the American people, and this is what they're telling me when I travel across the country. The three most important issues that they face, bad economy, high inflation, and high gas prices. We can do something about those issues. And part of the conversation I have in the book is how we can be hopeful even when we're in the midst of challenges. That the quagmire pit that you find yourself, it's not permanent. The beauty of America is that we are resilient. We became resilient because we overcame the obstacles in our way and we turned those obstacles into opportunities. Senator Jim Scott, we very much appreciate uh, you joining us this morning. The book uh, is called Thank America you, Redemption Story, and we look forward to talking again very, very soon. Next on Squawk Pod, when is a many thousand dollar bonus not enough? Wall Street's tough times ahead with Lydia Moynihan, reporter for The New York Post. For many of these younger bankers, they've only experienced good times where there's a bonus bonanza. So this is a dramatic shift. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Layoffs. Ooh, just the word sends a chill, doesn't it? We are seeing increasing headlines of hiring freezes and job cuts across industries. In tech, the parent company of Snapchat warned of incredibly challenging business conditions and may cut from its ranks of 6,000-plus workers. Groupon cut 15% of its workforce earlier this week to focus on what it's calling mission-critical functions. And Wall Street is grappling with a weird quiet 
steep declines in capital markets activity as IPOs have slowed to a crawl, pace of mergers and acquisitions fell. It's a little chicken and egg. Recession fears and rising interest rates have cooled excitement for deals. Deals aren't happening because of recession fears and rising interest rates. This comes after a boom time for financial services during the pandemic. Trillions of dollars of support for businesses and markets made bankers very busy. The six biggest U.S. banks added nearly 60,000 employees from the start of 2020 to the midpoint of 2022. And one of the major perks of the Wall Street job, the bonus, could be in jeopardy. 2021's average Wall Street bonus was a record high $257,000. That's the bonus, not the salary, what's on top. But things are different now. A bad first half of the year for the markets, that's slowing deal volume, and Wall Street's bonuses could be cut nearly in half this year. Andrew Ross Sorkin takes it from here. Joining us right now with more on all this is Lydia Moynihan, a New York Post reporter at QSUN, CNBC.com banking reporter. So what do we have in store, folks? Lydia, what, what, do you, what are you hearing here? Yeah, it's a very different time and a very different conversation than what we were having even six months ago. And we're really seeing the power shift away from the employees who previously were able to call the shots and demand perks, free car rides, free food, and shifting to the employer as we just see a lot of belt tightening across the board. And some of the millennials, some of the Gen Z bankers we're speaking with are saying they're very upset about their bonuses, threatening to quit, saying they're not motivated anymore. Um, but look, this is the first time they've really ever experienced a downturn on Wall Street. And for many of these younger bankers, they've only experienced good times where there's a bonus bonanza. So this is a dramatic shift. But when, when we, they tell us they're threatening to quit, the reality is if, if they quit in this environment, they're likely not going to get another job on Wall Street. There's 5%, 10% cooling across the board that Wall Street recruiters tell us is coming down the pike. And of course, you know, they used to be able to get a job easily in tech. Now tech is laying people off. So I, I think there is an element of schadenfreude among senior bankers who are finally seeing these whiny kids now, uh, now kind of facing the music and getting religion, that it's a tough industry. And uh, there's a, a deal breaker headline I saw this morning that I think kind of encapsulates that the bonus this year keeping your job. The bonus this year. Hugh, I assume this also is going to play in culturally to the whole idea of get back into the office, folks, right? Yeah, no, certainly that's the case, uh, Andrew, that uh, if you suspect you're in a business, let's call it equity capital markets, let's call it uh, you're in the IPO business and you're looking at the volumes. Uh, you know, obviously, since the last time we spoke about this topic, what is the new news, right? So we have July data from SIFMA, which is an industry trade group, uh, that all the banks uh, have to feed in their their volumes into. So it's a pretty good uh, snapshot. You know, it's down, IPO business is down 95% year to date, uh, which looks awful. If you actually drill down into the July figures, it's actually uh, even worse. So they're down, uh, it is among the slowest uh, months during the whole pandemic. So you've had a business that's decelerated, uh, that's basically uh, as slow as it's ever been. And you're looking at that, say, say you're part of the, that business you're sitting at Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, or you know, worse yet, even one of the, the folks who fall out of the bull bracket. You're looking at the volumes and you're saying, uh, I, I haven't done anything. I'm not doing anything. There's no business to do. And uh, what do I do? I'm going to be in the office. Uh, my presence is going to be seen. I'm going to be uh, making you know, uh, myself uh, seen at the office so that people are reminded of my existence. And you know, I, I think that the issue is, come Labor Day, people are going to be coming back from the Hamptons. 
uh, so early September or so, and they're going to say, what's the state of my business? And if it's still as slow as it is now, they're going to have to come up with lists of people that they can do without. Hey, Lydia, how much of this is going to impact just the younger generation? How much of this do you think is actually going to uh, hit people across the board, even at the top level? Well, high performers are always rewarded on Wall Street. So I think this is going to shift from everyone gets a piece of the pie now to the high performers are going to be especially compensated. It's going to be a very much eat what you kill environment. And I want to add to what Hugh is saying. When you look at the first people who are going to be laid off, again, hearing from recruiters, it's going to be at least five to 10% across the board. They are going to be targeting people, obviously, who are in divisions that aren't bringing in revenue, and then people who aren't showing up literally or figuratively. And one of the things we're hearing at JP Morgan, especially, you know, all of these companies are paying billions of dollars for their real estate. Jamie Dimon is telling his division heads, hey, if your people aren't in their desks five days a week, we are going to be taking those seats away from your division, reallocating them to other divisions. And so I think that is going to be a big piece of this conversation. That now, if you're not in your seat, it very much, very well might be taken away from you. Hey, Hugh, before we go, uh, there's been a sense that unemployment in this country is remarkably low, 3.6%. And by design, we've been trying to slow this economy. So uh, the result is going to be situations like this. The hope, of course, has always been that there's uh, enough need for new employees that actually if people were laid off or things like that were to take place, that they would find and land uh, in the right place themselves. Do you think that's not the case? I mean, this goes to what Lydia was saying at the top, which was, you know, there may not be, a, uh, you know, when the music stops, uh, there may not be a chair for everybody. But do you think that there's other places that they ultimately go? Or do you think that there's such a shutdown both across Wall Street and tech that there's just nowhere to go? Right. Yeah. So, you know, the playbook is I'm going to go to a fintech. Uh, I'm going to go to a hedge fund. I'm going to go into the buy side. I'm going to go into asset manager. Uh, and those are probably all places that are much harder to get to. You can go to Coinbase, for instance. I, I think you have to distinguish really between the, uh, the junior bankers, uh, you know, who would still be in demand at a lot of places uh, because they're not compensated that well. If you're a 45 year old MD or, or even a partner at Goldman uh, and you make uh, five to 10 million a year, what, uh, you know, your skill set could be very useful uh, as a CFO or, you know, as a treasurer somewhere. Uh, you know, uh, head of, head of uh, business development. But really, are those places going to hire you? And are they going to hire you at the same comp? So it really depends on where, you know, where you are in, in the pecking order. But, you know, you're, you're, all your options for no matter where you're on the spectrum will be diminished uh, given where we are in the cycle. And so people who would really are sitting at these desks really want to just survive until they can see perhaps some of these businesses coming back uh, in the fourth quarter. If there's a glimmer of hope at the fourth quarter or the first quarter, you would suspect that businesses would want to keep some of their headcount, uh, you know, just in, in primed and ready for it when the business returns. Hopefully, uh, Lydia, Hugh, thank you both uh, for bringing us this news. I'm, I'm sorry for, for those people who are hearing this news and may be impacted. And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Melissa Lee for sitting in today. To get the best of Squawk Box, the smartest takes and analysis from our three-hour TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate or review Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts. That helps spread the word. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 